Lord said, come unto me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what the Lord said uh, to a crowd similar to this crowd. Some knew him, some didn't know him, some were skeptical of him, some were weary of him, some loved him. And in a crowd, there's usually a case where that's where a lot of people are. So today, is there anybody need a prayer today? We always need oh, Anybody really that can admit? How about that? Anybody that can admit I need prayer today? Keep your hands up. Oh, man. Well, amen. Everybody needs prayer. Would you stand up? And if you were one of those people that were needing a prayer, if maybe somebody's there next to you that didn't raise their hand, uh, that they can pray for you, or they can pray for um, the per you can pray for the person next to them. But um, since a lot of us need prayer, and a lot of us are struggling in different areas of life, um, don't need to be publicized. But uh, uh, the Lord knows, and we can know as well. If you want to uh, lay a burden on somebody that can carry that load for you as well, uh, the Lord said that we could do that, and that's something that we need to do. Uh, to bear one another's burdens. If somebody that raised their hands is in need of prayer next to you or by you, uh, would you lay your hands on them? And uh, we're going to pray for them. So uh, if that's you, somebody say, hey, somebody lay your hands on me. And uh, if, if, uh, if you don't need specific prayer, you can pray for somebody next to you or around you or around the corner. Uh, just somebody, if you're not praying with somebody, you should. How about that? If you're just like, you need to pray for somebody or be prayed by someone. Let's pray uh, for the specific needs of this body uh, of individuals and their families. Lord, um, I know this person next to me. I love them, and I know that they're struggling. Lord, for some reason or another, they need prayer, uh, perhaps for themselves or perhaps for uh, Lord, their situation of their families or something along the lines of that. Lord, you know specifically the deep need of the heart. And Lord, I thank you that uh, you bore our burdens on the cross. You bear uh, them every day, Lord. You, you are the one who is our high priest, and we can come to you, Lord. We can come, Lord, with our deepest need and our deepest pains and, and, and those things that we can't even express. You know them. And so, Lord, they're not hidden from you. We just need to come to you, Lord, and deposit them, Lord, at your feet and say, Lord, help me and take my burdens, Lord. And I want your burden. I want your yoke, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray for the, the families that are here, the uh, friends and family, uh, for my brothers and sisters, and I ask you, Lord God, that you would help them in their struggle. Lord, if they're in need of healing tonight, Lord God, you would do that. If they're in need of uh, just your encouragement, of your, of your hand of, of compassion upon them, Lord, of mercy and grace, may that be done today, Lord God. Thank you for those who are praying with them and, 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 and for them. We ask you, Lord God, that you would take this fellowship and you would cause a deep love uh, rooted in, in, in Christ, one for another. It will be a fervent love, and it will be a love, Lord, that desires, Lord, not only the prayer, the fellowship, but also, Lord, uh, Lord, their growth and discipleship. And as they grow in Christ, Lord, we will be so blessed and so benefit in this fellowship, Lord. Uh, we ask you, Lord God, that uh, the, the gifts and the offerings that we receive today from the individuals, from families, May it be used, Lord, for the glory of your kingdom, for the, uh, the glory of Jesus, for the preaching of the gospel, Lord, and the outreach of many of those who have not heard. And so, Lord, we thank you that we receive, Lord, the offerings today uh, for you and for your use in this fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for the families that are here and those who have come, Lord. May you open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts 
to the glory of your word, the meaning of it, and Lord, in how we can go out of this place and put it in, in practice, put it in action, as you called us to be, salt and light in a dying world. Lord, help us to be that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, would you be seated and grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7? And uh, we're already running out of time, and we haven't even started. So I am going to hit the ground running, and uh, I'm not trying to confuse anyone, but we're trying to get through chapter 7 today of Luke. Luke chapter 7, let's go there very quickly, verse 1. Luke 7, when Jesus had concluded all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a centurion slave who was highly valued by him was sick, and he was about to die. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his slave. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house, and the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Uh, that's, uh, that's why I don't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the words and my servant will be cured. For I too am a man under a place under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Even uh, when those who had sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, this is the responses toward Jesus, different responses. In this chapter, there's several responses, several people, Gentiles, Jews, slaves, free men, Pharisees, women, men, different types of responses, different people. And, and the beauty of it, they all had a different kind of response. And my prayer today is that uh, you will find yourself in one of those responses. And I mean that, uh, that there are some good responses, and I hope that we find ourselves in those responses. There are some negative responses, there are some bad responses, that I hope that if you came with that a mindset or skepticism, that you'll find the Word of God to be not only the truth, but a refreshment to your soul, and that you would have the, quite a response that the Lord wants for us. He wants us to have a response of faith and trust in Him. And so the types of response, there were different people that met Jesus. They are, uh, the varieties of responses have to do with the human heart. How do we view Jesus? And what's our thought of Him? And it's, very, it's going to be very clear when you see the kind of responses that are found in this book, uh, this chapter specifically. The ministry of Jesus, very spontaneous at times. He would come to a town and he would meet people and face difficult circumstances, but Jesus was always ready to minister. The word of God was instant in him. Like Timothy says, be in season and out of season, be instant. That's the Lord. He was always instant to minister. And that's something that we need to be aware of uh, because of the needs, because of the people that we face in our everyday life, always ready to minister. The first person that we find is the surprising soldier. The surprising soldier, he is the centurion. He is the centurion. A centurion, we have the slide, there it is. Do we have the, um, the centurion here? We have a person who's under authority of Caesar, but he himself 
has authority over 100 soldiers, hence the word centurion. We get our word century in English, 100. 100, 100 people, 100 soldiers under his command. A very, very important part of leadership within the Roman Empire. They were the backbone of, the, of, of Rome. They were the backbone of Rome. Everything went and everything came by the centurions. A hundred soldiers under him. Uh, interestingly, in the Bible, especially in the book of Luke, centurions are they're good guys. They're viewed upon as good guys. They weren't always good. They've always had a negative connotation to them in the Roman Empire because they were very harsh. They were very difficult to deal with and they were very uh, uh, uncaring toward anything around them except for the benefit of Rome. But this centurion is quite different. Look what it says. Uh, when Jesus entered Capernaum, verse 2, a centurion slave, highly valued by him. That should grab your attention because slaves were not valued in any way whatsoever. In fact, uh, according to history, Rome looked at slaves as the lowest form. And when a slave was sick, it's similar to what they do to uh, high-priced horses. They, 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 once they get sick or injury, they're only good for one thing. You put them out of their misery. And slaves were viewed upon that way that if they were sick, they were put aside, they were not fed, they were kept in a room by themselves, only waiting for them to die. Nobody really cared for them, a slave. This soldier, uh, this centurion specifically, highly valued this slave. For some reason or another, the Bible gives us the story of this centurion who was very compassionate toward him. Even though his slave was about to die, he loved him. Verse 3, the centurion had heard about Jesus and he sent the Jewish elders requesting him to come. Now, it's interesting that the centurions were not Jews. They were Romans. They were in an occupied country. They were in Jerusalem. They were in Judea. They were different fortresses throughout Israel. They didn't care for Israel. They could care less. It's almost like the UN. When the UN goes into Israel, they could care less what happens to the, to, to the nation of Israel or to the Jews. Uh, the Romans were the same. They were in basically in Jewish territory, but they could care less about the Jewish people. They were only interested in Rome's benefit. But this man was quite different. He actually had helped them build a synagogue. Look what it says. They come to Jesus in verse 4, and they pleaded with Jesus earnestly. He is worthy, uh, he is worthy to grant, you the, uh, grant him this because he loves our nation and he built us a synagogue. In fact, if you go to uh, Capernaum, you get on a flight today, uh, to Tel Aviv, and uh, I know here a lot of things are dangerous there, but uh, God can take care of us, right? If we go down there and we land there, we can go to Capernaum, just north by the Sea of Galilee, and uh, there is a, uh, the ruins of a second or third century synagogue. That synagogue, that's, that ruin, it's actually built upon this synagogue that's, uh, that's talked about here. This synagogue in Capernaum, the ruins of the one that's currently there, are sitting on top of this one that's in chapter 7. And it's interesting, they have Roman architect. It's, it's a, basically a Roman, Greco-Roman architectural structure, but it has Jewish symbols, which was uh, uh, unusual, except for there were some uh, Roman help uh, to build synagogues, just like the chapter 7 tells us, that uh, there was some kind of Roman influence, even though it was a Jewish synagogues and Jewish symbols, there was still some Roman influence in the way that it was built. This man, for some reason, not only loved the Jews, but he helped them build a synagogue, a place of worship. And so they come to, to Jesus with this plead, but on the way to the house, we're told, Jesus agreed to go, and on the way to the house, the centurion sends 
friends to tell Jesus, don't worry about coming. Um, I, I'm not worthy to come. And uh, all you have to do is say the words, and my slave would be healed. He'll be fine. And Jesus is surprised by this. And in verse uh, 9, he's amazed by this. Why was the amazement? It's because this man had a type of faith that the Bible commends. The Bible uh, commends us as a faithful man. And it surprised Jesus. Jesus, knowing all things, he was surprised. It's an amazement of the, because of the humanity of Jesus. The Bible is telling us here he was amazed and surprised at this response. What was his response? This man had said, look, Jesus, um, I know who you are. You are a man under authority, and so am I. Uh, because I'm a man under authority, I can tell anybody what to do, and they do it. Uh, a friend of mine who was in ministry went into the army, a wonderful, wonderful guy, and uh, he was telling me, so I used to be, you know, he's a part-time pastor, part-time ministry, and he said, uh, you know, in, in, in ministry, it's different. You have to, you know, you, there's a lot of um, um, volunteers, and you plead with them, and you pray with them, and hopefully God moves on their hearts, and they, they do certain things. And uh, when I went to the army, it was different. I went in, and I started telling people what to do, and they did it. And it took a long time to get used to it because I was so used to just hoping that they did it and hoping that they would do something. But here, he went in, he said it, and it happened. And it took some time, but he understood authority, much more being in the army. And this is exactly what the centurion was dealing with. He understood authority. Why? He himself was under authority, the authority of Caesar. Because he had authority under Caesar, he can tell people what to do. He saw Jesus, and he said, Jesus, you're also under authority. What authority? God's authority. Because he was under God's authority, Jesus can say and do and do miracles, and it would happen. And he understood authority. And therefore, he had this faith that, Jesus, you don't need to even come to my house. Uh, his humility is amazing. Look what it says. I didn't come to you because I am not worthy uh, to have you come under my roof, and I'm not worthy to come to you. Um, his humility was amazing. This was not a normal centurion response. The fact that he didn't want Jesus to come under his roof because uh, he wasn't worthy or even worthy to come to him, he sends others to come. You would say, well, what, what does he just come to Jesus? Well, think of his faith like our faith. It's, it's a very similar faith to the New, believers, uh, New, New Testament believers. What is that? We don't have Jesus here physically. He's not here. We can't take him home to our loved ones and pray for our sick family members or our loved ones. We can't take them home and do that. However, we could pray right here and have him, and the Lord can heal because we trust that God can do anything. We don't even have to have Jesus in our presence uh, physically in order for somebody to be healed. Amen? We can just pray and say, Lord, just heal the person across Africa. And we know, Lord, that if you just say the words, he will be healed. It's, it's exactly what the centurion thought. He didn't need to have Jesus present. He didn't need to have uh, the, you know, the presence of Jesus or the touch of Jesus or any kind of religious experience. He just trusted that God's word was sufficient. Just say the word, Jesus, and it will be right. Isn't that us today? We don't, I, I, I don't need to go seek an experience, right? Oh, I need to see a shooting star. Or I need to see something. And then I know that God is listening to me. No, I know he listens. I know he cares. I know that if I ask him, he will do because of our faith in him. Now, God delights in this because he says, I haven't even found this faith, not even in Israel. Now, what happened in Israel? 
I tell you a story of Nazareth. I don't know if I have it here. No, it's not. Uh, In Nazareth, there was a story that is amazing. Jesus was from Nazareth, but he went to Nazareth, and the Bible says he did no miracles there because they didn't believe in him. They did not believe in him. Remember the story? Jesus was not welcome in his hometown. A prophet is without honor in his hometown. He didn't have honor there. They knew him. He was there. He had grown up there, but they didn't trust him. They didn't believe in him. Outsiders did easier. A centurion had more faith than the people of Nazareth. What does that tell us? It's one one important thing. This is a response. Remember, we're we're talking responses here. The response is familiarity with the things of God can breed contempt toward the things of God. Familiarity can breed contempt. Remember that old saying, familiarity breeds contempt? It's exactly the case whenever you're talking about spiritual matters. The more you know about the Lord, it makes us quite accountable. The more we know about Bible, the more we know about Jesus. But it also, it's, a, it's another danger. We're oftentimes closed off in our faith because we're so used to it. And we don't trust the Lord like it was when it was new, when it was fresh, when it was real, when it was something that you've never heard before. How can this be? This centurion out of Israel, not even in Israel, a Gentile, no knowledge of the word of God as the Jews had, has more faith than those in his hometown. They would say of Jesus, who is this carpenter, Joseph's son? Can you believe this guy? He thinks he's the Messiah. They did not even recognize him. A Gentile does. And familiarity could be a very dangerous thing in our lives, especially those who grew up in Christian homes, when we don't trust the Lord enough to ask and by faith believe his word is sufficient. We just, well, you know, I've just been, you know, yeah, I've heard that thing so many times. And, you know, how many times have we read the Sermon on the Mount? How many times have we read this? And it, it sometimes it makes us callous. It makes us inoculated toward the real work of God in our lives. Like God wants us to have faith, to trust him. But sometimes it's blocked by familiarity. Oh, I heard that before. Oh, I've known that before. How many times, Pastor? I mean, this is probably the third or fourth time you mentioned that. It's probably because... We don't want to be so familiar that it breeds contempt. It has to be new. It has to be fresh. It has to be real to us. Now, in third world countries, and missionaries that I know, persecuted believers, um, they pray. And it's an amazing thing happens when they pray. Things happen. Why? They have real faith. It's a real faith. They just read it, and they do it. They read the Bible, and they say, just love your enemy. Okay, I'm going to love the guy who just stoned me yesterday and, and tried to kill me. I'm just going to love him, and I'm just going to bless him. That's right. That's right. It does happen that way. And so what they're to do, they're just to, they, they do it. It says, pray without ceasing. They pray without ceasing. Now, when we read the Bible sometimes, oh, you know that guy, you know, the guy that did that thing to me, the other, I, don't, I can't stand it. I'll pray for him, maybe, you know. And we become so... Um, we don't back our responses with faith. This soldier did. This soldier recognized that Jesus had authority, and without any background, without anything, he believed and trusted. Without ever having the presence of God, the presence of Jesus, he just trusted the simple word. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we just have the faith to just read the word and go, man, it says it. I'm going to do it, and God's going to answer me. Amen? Oh, boy. All right. So that's one response. Um, I feel like sometimes when we read it, I feel like saying, Lord, is that me? 
is that me? Am I like those people in Nazareth that are so familiar with stories like this, but there's no response to your word. There's, no, there's a callousness about it because I'm so familiar with it. And boy, that was a great danger. Those on the outside can have more faith sometimes than those on the inside. Well, tell that to the Pharisees. Those on the outside had more faith than those on the inside because they trusted the Lord for what he said. He was a man under authority, and he recognized authority. See, one problem that we have in our society today is we don't longer recognize authority. You rebel against any kind of authority. Right? This authority, that authority, forget it. Throw it off. But people that are under authority, like in the army, they recognize, oh, I am under the authority of the word of God. Jesus is under, he's my authority. I need to respond to him by faith. Now let's go to the second response. The second response is very interesting. It is the weeping widow. Not the weeping willow, the weeping widow. This widow had lost her husband and now had lost her son. Look what verse 11 says. Soon afterwards, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples had a large crowd and were traveling with them. Just as he entered the city gates, uh, a dead man was being carried out. And his mother's, uh, he was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't cry. Then he came up and he touched the open coffin, and the pallbearer stopped and he said, Young man, I tell you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came upon everybody. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report went about throughout the whole land of Judea and all of the vicinity, which is a, it goes into the next phase, which is John the Baptist. But this is a widow's son. This is a town called Nain. There it is, called Nain. It's south of Capernaum, south of the Sea of Galilee. It is close to uh, an area called uh, Endor. Uh, which we know the story is the witch of Endor, which is uh, in the book of uh, Samuel, uh, Saul visiting that. And it's also next to a place where Elijah has done a miracle as well. And so it's a very, very interesting town because that whole town understood not only occult practices of witches, which is Endor, uh, but also had heard of stories in the Old Testament account of Elisha doing a great miracle for another widow with another son who had died. This is not a coincidence that this story takes place here. This is, you'll find that in 2 Kings when Elisha goes to this village. And the village is right by Nain. It's actually very close to Nain. And they understood the things of the occult because of Endor. But they've also understood uh, that God had done a great miracle by this great prophet. And this is the response that they see about Jesus. But look, let's look at this more closely. Uh, in those days, this widow had no husband, obviously, and her only son had died. This means no SSI, no pension, none of that. She is going to be a beggar or a prostitute. That's the only two things that a woman could do when her son or her husband had died. She would go into the prostitution or she'd become a beggar. That's the implication here. She is in dire need. She is in a dire need. And her son is being carried out, and they're mourning for him, but in comes Jesus. Here comes the prince of life. And I love this because in our society, we understand funeral. It's just a funeral procession. 
in our funeral procession, and I was just, uh, I, I got caught up in one of them, not by choice. I, I was driving on the freeway, and then there was this procession that was coming. It was, a, it was a policeman, and there was just, you know, sirens everywhere, and everybody had to move out, to the, out of the way because there's this long procession on the freeway. Um, they were heading toward, uh, toward the funeral or toward the, the place where we're going to bury the man and, or the woman, and everybody had to get out of the way because the procession, and that's usually the case. Death sort of takes the, uh, the, the, the case there. It, it, death becomes the priority in the circumstance, but not when Jesus is there. When Jesus shows up, death itself gets out of the way, and I thought, I was like, that's really good. Um, we think of death like, oh man, it's priority. When Jesus is there, death is not priority. The Lord is priority. He comes to the casket. Well, first he comes to the woman. He does three things. Uh, he has compassion. He has compassion, but he does three things. Number one, he tells the woman, don't cry. Literally, it's the word, stop crying. It's actually a command. It's it sort of, you would see it and go, wow, that's kind of harsh. Jesus is telling this woman to stop. Her son died. I mean, come on. Be nice. Well, he had compassion. The word compassion is the word bowels. It comes from your bowels. It comes from your gut. That's where the compassion actually sits. Uh, if, you, if you think about it in the, in the scriptures, all the emotions come from your gut. All the emotions come from your gut. It is the seat of emotion. We often think of emotion as coming from the heart. The Bible says the emotion comes from your, from your gut. Ever heard of the saying, I had that gut feeling? There it is. Uh, we even have that in our, in our, in our thinking, right? Uh, when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he wept vehemently from within. It was a, a, a vehement cry that comes from deep within you, deep compassion. Well, Jesus had this compassion. He sees this woman. He knows the implications. And he tells this woman, stop crying. Why? The prince of life is here. When I'm here, death has to get out of the way. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Stop crying. Something's going to happen. Death does not take priority here. Jesus does. And he said to the young man, get up. And the man got up. And he sat up. And, and it's interesting, verse 15, the word sat up there. It's beautiful. Luke being a doctor, it's the word he got better. It literally, it's a, it's a medical term. Only a doctor would say that. The dead man got better. Well, that sounds really interesting if you just were to read it. How did the dead man get better? <laughs> well, man, Jesus is there. That's pretty simple. That's why we need to stop crying. Jesus is there. The dead man got well. Uh, no, no doctor can do that. Only the Lord can. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear came upon everybody, and they glorified God. He commands her to stop crying. He touches the coffin, which in Jewish terms, no, no. You can't do that. A rabbi, a teacher cannot touch a coffin. Dead. You can't touch dead stuff. Anything that's dead, can't go around a corpse or anything like that. Otherwise, you're ceremonially unclean. You can't pray that day. You can't do anything. You have to go through this purification. No worries. Jesus is there. He doesn't need that. Why? Because the man's going to get up anyway. And he spoke to the young man, get up, and he begins to talk. Now, I told you this city is right by a city called Endor. It's also by a village um, where Elisha had healed this man had, had actually uh, um, raised uh, the young man from the dead. It's actually Mount Tabor. Hope I'm not going out of camera, Steve. All right. Uh, Mount Tabor is right there. Uh, this is where um, Deborah would have fought the battle in the book of Judges. Here's Nain. Uh, Shunam is right here. Shunam is right above that. And that's where, in the book of Kings, we're told that Elisha goes there 
and he raises another widow's son. So this is why the story takes place there. Why? They were used to it. There was myth. There was legends. There was a culture of, uh, they knew the occult because of Endor and the witches there. They also knew about the great miracle that God had done through Elisha. This miracle happened at a place where they were very much accustomed to the supernatural aspect of being raised from the dead. And Jesus comes and he puts his son back into her mother's lap. What a joy. And uh, the people begin to fear. Why? It's just, they were used to supernatural stuff. Is this something, is this something like the witch of Endor stuff? Or is this something of the Lord? Is this something of a great prophet? And of course, the response is, they glorify God and they say, a great prophet has risen among us, which is in picture of Elisha. Elisha was a man that was used by the Lord to raise another widow's son. And God has visited his people. And it's very interesting about this power of evil, power of evil or power of good. Supernatural, yes. The people knew both of these things. And Jesus was making it clear to the people that were there that he alone has the power to raise people from the dead. It's not the occult practices. It's not the things that, they, that, they, that they're used to. It's the real power of God. The witch of Endor, or that stuff, you know, we live in a society that's similar to that, right? And our society has become very occult, very supernatural, seeking after things that uh, are, are the, what the Bible condemns it, about those who speak to the dead, those who seek after mediums and wizards and things like that. The Bible condemns those things. Why? Because they're occult practices. They're demonic activity. That's really what it is. A lot of, you know, it's, people talk about, oh, my great aunt visited me and, and so forth, and, and, you know, she's been dead for 20 years, but she gave me a message, and and a lot of times people believe this stuff, and it, it becomes, it's rooted in them. Uh, you go to South America, you go to Latin America, where there's a, there's a lot of Santeria, there's a lot of voodoo. Um, people believe this. This is very deep ingrained in the culture. Jesus comes to that same culture, and he says, death, a cult? No, the prince of life. In John 5, 28, 29, Jesus said that in the last days he would talk, he would speak, and the dead will rise, and they will come to him. He would hear, the, the dead will hear Jesus out, and they would be raised from the dead. The quick and the dead, as we say, he's the judge of the quick and the dead. Death itself cannot hide anybody from, from God. Uh, in our society, some people love the occult. Some people are very turned off and, and don't care about death in a sense of uh, uh, any kind of fear of death. Uh, we live in a society that also thinks death is the end. You've heard talk to somebody like, oh, man, I just can't wait to die. You don't have to worry about taxes, worry about government, nothing. Just, I'm all done. I'm peace. And uh, the reality of it is it's not true. Death is not the end. Believer or unbeliever, death is not the end. You will not end when death knocks at your door. When death knocks at your door, and all of us will have to face that unless the Lord takes us, right? Uh, unless the Lord takes us, Every one of us will have to face that, 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 that reality. But when death comes to the believer, it's like going through a door. It's going from one place to the other. Literally, the Bible says it's from going to one place to another. We go from this world onto eternal life with the Lord. To the non-believer, to the non-believing world, death, it's, it's the most horrific thing that could happen because you go from one place, from this place, to a place of torment, but it's not the end yet because the end will be when Jesus raises you from the dead. And you will have to face the Lord. You will have to face him in judgment. The point of the matter is, death cannot hide you from Jesus Christ. Death cannot keep you from the day that you will meet the Lord. And every one of us in this room, you will meet the Lord. I guarantee you that. You may not believe me now. When it happens, you'll believe me. 
When it happens, you believe me. Hopefully, you believe the gospel now. So when that day comes, you will stand with the Son of Man in glory, and you will come with the Lord in glory. Amen? You will come with the Lord. He won't come for you in judgment. But every one of us has to face our reality. Death itself cannot hide you. You can't say, oh, man, I can't wait to die because then I don't have to deal with God. I don't have to deal with this Christians and gospel and all this Bible stuff. I'll just be at peace, man. I'll just be, oh, just, just hanging out, just nothing. Oh, boy. Sorry to burst the bubble. But there will be a call. It will be your name. And it will be the voice of Jesus calling you to stand in judgment with him. And that, my friend, is something the Lord will want you to avoid. That's something, my friend, that I would want you to avoid that you believe the gospel today, that you would not stand in judgment with the Son of Man. When he comes, he will come. And by all appearances that we see in the world today, he is about to enter. Again, he's about to enter the atmosphere of this world. He's about to enter into time and space to rescue his people. And then the Bible says that the day of the Lord will begin. That, that's a really a terrible thing that would happen. And I, I pray that the Lord will spare all of us like Jesus said, that you'll be worthy to escape from the things that are coming upon the earth. And that's what the Bible hopes and prays that you would do. But death itself cannot hide you. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He is the prince of life. He has power over death and over life. And those who feared and those who glorify God. Now, next response. Next response is the pondering prophet. The pondering prophet, and this is in verse 18. Then John's disciples came to him. Uh, came to him and told them all these things. And John summoned two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who's to come or should we look for someone else? Now this story takes place in Machaerus. Machaerus, you can visit it today. Actually, I didn't bring pictures of that. That's shame on me. But that's where it was. Machaerus was the old prison in the Dead Sea, one of the lowest, if not the lowest place on the face of the earth. It's below sea level, very hot, very warm. It's near the Dead Sea, so it's very, very hot, very arid. It's near Jordan. And this is a place where Herod imprisoned John the Baptist because John the Baptist stood up against uh, the unlawful marriage of Herod and his wife. He had taken his brother's wife, and it was unlawful. It was adultery. And John the Baptist stood up against it, so John, uh, Herod shut him up, put him in prison. And now he's in prison, and in prison, He's thinking of these things. He's a pondering prophet. What is he pondering? His disciples were coming to him, and he's wondering, are you the one, or should we look for someone else? This was torture. This was torture in a, in a great way. Number one, uh, John the Baptist suffered physically. He was a man of the outdoors. Yes, he was in this little room. In fact, uh, if you see the prison, it's, it's, it's a very small four-by-four four room, in a sense, with bars. It's still to this day you can go there. And he was physically unable to leave that place. He was in prison with very little food. He suffered physically. He suffered mentally. Uh, he had a mental, a physical stress, I mean, a mental stress, and the fact that he didn't know why Jesus hadn't gotten him out yet. He didn't know why Jesus hadn't gotten him out yet. Jesus is doing all these great things, but here's me. I'm his cousin. I mean, we're close. We knew each other. Why am I still here? He's doing all these wonderful things out there, healing everybody. And I'm still in this prison. And he wondered about that, I'm sure. But he also suffered probably the, the most deepest thing is the spiritual stress, this spiritual uh, consternation. What was it? Is he the one 
Or should we look for someone else? Remember, John the Baptist had received this prophecy that he was going to come and he was going to be the, the, the forerunner. He was going to come before Jesus came. He was going to lay out the, the, the place for the Messiah to walk on so that people would recognize him and believe him. And he was the one that was going to go and preach before Jesus came. And he did. He did all that. In fact, he was convinced that this was the Messiah. He baptized Jesus. The Holy Spirit would fill John the Baptist from birth. He was absolutely sure that this was the Messiah, that his cousin was the Messiah. God was going to do great things. And we're told the prophecy of John the Baptist is that Jesus was going to come and he was going to baptize with fire and his winnowing fan, which is a, basically a tool that they used to separate the shaft from the wheat, and the shaft was going to go into fire and the wheat was going to go to the storehouses pictures and symbols of the uh, when the Lord comes, he's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And there was this, this picture that Jesus was going to come as the king of Israel and judge the world from, from Israel. And yet it had not happened yet. And he began to wonder, did I get the wrong message? Did God speak to me, but I got it wrong? Was, is that the right guy? I mean, I put all my hopes on this guy, that he would be the one, and nothing's happening. I'm still in prison, and nothing's happening, and all I hear is good things that he's doing. How can this be? Is he the one? Well, this is a common pattern in the, in the New Testament. People that misunderstood the two comings of Jesus. The same person, but two different comings. They believed that the Lord was going to come, that the Messiah was going to come, but he was going to rule and reign from Israel as a king and to bring judgment unto the world. And to, and to lift up Israel as, the, as the, the great nation, and he will be like King David. They, they hoped in that, and they believed that, but it wasn't happening. And there are, certain, there are many prophecies about the, uh, the Messiah doing that in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, most of the prophecies about the king are that. The other prophecies, though, are just as valid. It's the suffering Messiah. Is the one who would come and die and suffer for the sins of many, for the sins of you, for the sins of me. He would bear the sins of, of our, uh, um, bear our sins on the cross. He would die. He would suffer unlike any other human. And he would be basically stricken by God. He would be forsaken by God. And that is the picture of the Messiah also in the Old Testament. But most Jews only understood the first one that I told you about the king, the triumphant king. Most of them focus on that. And even John the Baptist was tripped up on that. Is he the one? But he didn't realize that the prophecies about Jesus were just as valid, that he would heal, that he would forgive sin, that he would raise people from the dead, that he would make the blind see, the lame walk, and preach the gospel to those who hear. That was also prophetic. So John the Baptist sends his disciples, and they ask Jesus, Look what it says in verse 20. The men reached them and they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who's to come or should we look for someone else? And at that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, plagues and evil spirits. And he granted sight to many who were blind. And he replied to them, go and tell John these things you see and have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who, uh, the lepers are being healed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And anyone who is not offended by me because of me is blessed. After John's message left, uh, messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Now take a look at this. Jesus doesn't respond 
It's, it's almost like a mysterious response. He doesn't go, yep, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one. Go tell him, go tell him that he's right. Now, was John the Baptist right about Jesus? Absolutely he was. Was he wrong in some way? The timing. He didn't know the timing of it all. He believed that the Messiah would come and set up the kingdom right there and then. He believed that the Messiah would come and rule over Israel. That was the hope. That was the hope of Israel. But he didn't see that first part or was maybe blinded by the first part that Jesus would come and preach the gospel to the poor heal all those diseases, make the lame walk, made the deaf hear, made the blind see. Those are all pictures of the Messiah. Why? It's Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Jesus doesn't give the answer. He gives them the word. He doesn't go, yeah, it's me. He gives it. Go back to the word. Understanding that John the Baptist knew the Bible really well, he says, go back to John, uh, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Go back to that. Because it's exactly the description of the Messiah. It's there. It's clear that he would do that. Must have brought great joy to John the Baptist because he would say, oh man, he was right there. He is the Messiah. He's doing exactly what the Lord said he would do. Oh, what a great joy. And, and, and before he was beheaded, of course, later on, we know that Herod beheaded him. Great joy filled his heart. He is the Messiah. He's the one to come. He's going to save us from our sins first. And see, that's what the Lord is about today. The Lord, it's going to rule and reign, no doubt. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He's the King of all things. He's everything that you ever imagined to be. He's God. But first, before he rules and reigns, he wants to rule and reign in your heart. He wants to rule and reign in your life. He wants to forgive you of your sins. He wants to give you eternal life. What is it good? What good is it to have a king that rules in righteousness and justice if we ourselves are unrighteous and unjust? We wouldn't be able to live in his kingdom. We would be cast off. We would be discarded. We would be judged, my friend. And the Lord does not want to do that. He delights in mercy. He delights in forgiveness. The Lord wants to forgive you first before he rules and reigns because he wants you to reign with him. That's why he's waiting. He said, why is the Lord waiting? He's not willing that you perish. He wants you to reign with him. He wants you to be his part of his family. He wants you to be his friend. Like Abraham, he was a friend of God. He invites you to come and be his friend. But you first have to receive him. You first have to accept him. And John had to do that. John, with his doubts, had to come and bring his doubts to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Um, I have had my doubts uh, as a Christian, even as a Christian, as a young Christian. I had doubts about the Bible and the Word of God. And go, How does it all work out? How does it all mean? What is it all supposed to mean? But you know what? Those doubts are to be brought before the Lord. Just like John the Baptist. Take your doubts to Jesus. You have doubts today? Take them to Jesus. He'll answer you. And see, the word of God answers the doubts, but he wants us to work out the doubts. He doesn't just go, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Tell him that. That's not the way doubts are scattered or gone. Doubts are gone by the person who has the doubts working out the evidence and removing the doubts ourselves. Okay, you have doubts today. The word of God gives you the evidence. And then you have to say, well, based on the evidence... I don't even know why I doubt. <laughs> I don't even know why I had those doubts. And they're removed. And my friend, they're doubters. There's good doubters and they're bad doubters. What do you mean bad doubters? Bad doubters are like the ones that the Bible is going to speak of right now. The ones who are just want to argue, just want to fight, just want to basically not want to receive the Lord for what he says, 
but they want to receive the Lord or they want to receive something on, based on their terms. And that's something very common in the ministry of Jesus. They never accepted him. The Pharisees never accepted him for who he was. They wanted him to be something different. And seeing the Lord wants you to accept his Messiah, not your idea of the Messiah. That's very different. People have the, an idea of Jesus. Oh, he's supposed to be like this. He's supposed to do this. He's supposed to do that. Jesus said, no. Tell John this. And it was exactly what Jesus was doing. And on the basis of that is how you received it. And see, today, people, you talk to people about the Lord. You talk to people about Jesus. And you present the, the real Jesus to them. And people still refuse it. Why? They have an idea of Jesus. They have a Jesus that they want to believe in. That he's supposed to be like this. Well, I don't believe the one in the Bible. You've seen those shows like on uh, National Geographic or things like that. Usually they come out right around a, a Passover season, right around the time of the resurrection, just to try to deviate people from the truth. Oh, you know, they have these 10 liberal teachers, 10 liberal pastors that don't even believe in the Bible, telling us that the Bible is not real. And they give you all these evidence that it's not real, but all these things are, are, are just excuses. Because they never tell you the truth. They never tell you anything about the Bible that is valid. They just tell you their opinions. Well, we don't believe in a Jesus that would you know, condemn this or judge this. And, and in reality, they're building up an image in your mind. But God is not like that. And so you, you, as soon as you hear the real Jesus, you go, that's not the one I, I don't want that guy. I don't want that Jesus. And look what it says. It's just fitting. Jesus says in verse 23, and anyone who is not offended by me because of me is blessed. Woe because of offenses. There are people who are offended who Jesus is. They basically don't want the answer. They just want to argue. And the Pharisees were like that. John the Baptist's message was clear that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, that he was the Messiah, but they didn't even believe in John. Verse 24, after John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. It's almost as if, almost as if Jesus knew the crowd had heard that John was doubting, and he wanted to break all those doubts. Oh, he's not doubting. Take a look who John the Baptist really was. What did you go out and see in the wilderness? A reed swaying in the wind? What did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Look! Those who live like that live in luxury and live in palaces. What then did you go out and see? A prophet? I tell you that. More than a prophet, this is the one that's written about. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He'll prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one's greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all these people... And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized by John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. There it is right there. The true skeptics were the ones that were going, you know what, I have my doubts, but I'm going to go to the Lord, and I'm going to accept what God says as the truth and evidence for my life, that this is Jesus. That this is the Jesus that I'm to trust in. That this is the God of the Bible. That this is his word given to us so that we can trust and have eternal life. But the Pharisees didn't even believe in John. The Pharisees said, oh, John the Baptist, come on. Seriously, that guy? He lived in like the wilderness. Ate locusts, honey. I mean, who can believe that guy? 
And therefore, when they heard the message of John the Baptist, which was about Jesus, they did not receive Jesus at all. They could care less about Jesus, and they rejected the plan of God. They wanted their own plan. They wanted their own version of God and their own version of the Messiah. But they didn't want the real Messiah. And I'm afraid today there's a lot of people that have built up this image in their mind and, and through media and, and movies and whatever. They have built up this thing about God in their mind and, and about Jesus that are totally foreign to the Bible. The, the, but that's what they're trusting in. And he doesn't even exist. That God will, God will never judge sin. The Bible says he does. But before he does, he gives people a chance to believe in him and to turn away from sin so he can save them. But you build up this thing in your mind. Well, the Bible is not the word of God. Who told you that? How did you come to that conclusion? Well, this guy, this professor on TV, National Geographic, got all these PhDs are after him. Um, he said the Bible is not true. Well, that's, that's fine by me. Well, you, you're going to spend all of your eternity based on what one guy said instead of what the Word of God says. Just read the Bible for what it says. The, plan, the Pharisees rejected the plan of God. It was there. It was real. They could have had it, but they wanted their own plan. And you see people today all the time that do that. John the Baptist, look at the response. Verse 34, uh, verse 31, I'm sorry. To what then should I compare this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, but we didn't dance. We lamented for you, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating, uh, eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come in eating and drinking. And you say, look, he's a glutton and a drunker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all their children. This is so like today. Um, basically, Jesus is saying, you know, a generation, it's fickle. There are people who are fickle. They don't want the truth. They just want to argue. And they don't want Jesus. They just want their version of Jesus. And when the real Jesus shows up, they don't even recognize him or accept him. But the Pharisees had the chance, and they didn't do it. But Jesus compared them to a children that are fickle. They go to the marketplace. And check this out. They didn't have iPads and iPod back then. And, and they didn't have... Um, you know, the, the games, uh, um, what is that game that people play in the front yard? Um, uh, hopscotch. And they didn't have all those things. So in those days, they played weddings and funerals. That's what children played. They saw the adults and they said, well, we're going to have a wedding. And, and they saw the adult, we're going to have a funeral. And people play that. And, and the children play those games, weddings and funerals. That was a common game at the time of Jesus. And Jesus said, people like the Pharisees, people that want to argue, Bad skeptics, they're like children, childish. They want to play wedding one day, and then they want to play funeral the other day. And when somebody's playing funeral, they want to play wedding. And when somebody's playing wedding, they want to play funeral. They are never satisfied with anything that God says. They want it their way, and they reject the plan of God. They saw John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not come eating and drinking. He was an, he was an outsider. He came, he preached, but he was an outsider. People didn't like him because he was an outsider. Oh, look, he doesn't even associate with us. He's in the wilderness. He has a demon. Forget that guy. Then Jesus comes, and he's different. He's among them. He's eating and drinking with them. He's among the people, and they say, oh, he's a glutton. Come on, look, a friend of sinner, tax collector. Who wants that guy? And Jesus says, look, wisdom is it's, uh, known by his children. You don't have the wisdom of God. Because everything that God gives you, you reject because you want something different. 
And it says, woe to that generation. They're childish. They're childish in their, not childlike, childish. They don't want the things of God. And want to put a capstone on all this? Verse 36. The last response. The last response. The loveless host. This is all, this is all, this basically puts the whole thing in perspective. One of the Pharisees invited him to eat. He entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with tears. She wiped his feet with her hair and, and, and on her head, kissing them and anointing them with fragrant oil. And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if we were a prophet, um, would know what kind of a woman this is to touch us, touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I said, I have something to tell you. Teacher, he said, say it. A, credit, uh, a creditor or uh, somebody who lends money, a lender, had two debtors, one owed 500 and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love the most? Now, this is, this is an amazing thing because Jesus is invited to a, a party. Jesus is invited to a party. And in this party, it's by a Pharisee named Simon. And Simon invites all these people. And uh, by the way, that's the way it would have looked. It would have been in a courtyard and people would not have been sitting in lawn chairs and chairs like that. They would be reclining at the table. Uh, and, and it's called a triclinium. It's really uh, just a table with cushions on the floor. And you would sit leaning on your left hand and eating with your right, and your feet will be kicked out because you would be leaning. So sort of like this, and you're leaning out to the side. It was really quite comfortable, and I'm wondering if I should get that for the house. Uh, I don't know if anybody would visit after a while, but it was quite comfortable, and it would have been in the middle of a courtyard, and people all over the villages would have come and would have seen who the guests were. It was a big show. It actually was a big show for the Pharisees because they wanted to sort of show off who's in their you know, who's who, you know, sort of like TMZ. Who's who in this, uh, oh, who showed up? Who's riding in this limousine? This black limousine shows up, and, and it's Jesus, and it's, it, it, people, that's the mentality. Who came? Oh, who, Simon the Pharisee? Oh, who, who came to his house? And Jesus is invited, but look what happens. Jesus is there, and this woman shows up. And this woman, she's an immoral woman. She's a sinner. The word sinner there is the idea of she was a, like an immoral woman, like a prostitute. Most people would have discarded her, except for a few men. But this woman was not welcome in any town, not even welcome in any home. And she comes and begins to kiss the feet of, the feet of Jesus, uh, wiping her, te- uh, her, her feet with her tears and her hair. I mean, she got so close to Jesus, and she was so close to him. And Simon, who's standing afar off, is going, if this guy, how can this man be a prophet? He doesn't have any discernment. I mean, she, if he was a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner. Why is he letting him touch you know, all this stuff? And forget it. This man is not a prophet. Jesus knew those thoughts. And he says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. And this whole chapter is encapsulated in this little parable, a few words. And you, you should say, well, why didn't you just say that from the beginning? We could have been done with this message a long time ago. Well, uh, how to build it up to this. This is it. This is the part that we all have to get. If you fell asleep, Wake up. This is the part that we all have to get. Jesus gives a story. There's a creditor, a lender, who one owed, had two debtors, 550 denarii. You would say in our day, a million dollars and $10,000. Somebody owed that kind of money. And then they could not pay it back. He graciously forgave them both. 
Now, this was a, a really weird thing. When do lenders forgive that? When does that happen? Uh, the, the, you know, the Simon was probably going, what is this hypothetical story? Come on. Lenders don't do that. But see, Jesus is trying to explain something much more different, much more deeper than just a lender. Somebody who we are debtors to, all of us together are debtors to him. And not of money. We are debtors of sin. He's trying to explain that God is, he is the lender. And he graciously forgives two people. One owed him a lot, one owed him very little. Who do you think love him more? That's the question. Look at Simon's response. I suppose. And that's, that's the idea. I suppose. I suppose the one who forgave more. Jesus, this is such a hypothetical story. I'll, I'll, I'll go along with it. Fine. The one who owed more. How about that? You've judged correctly, he told them. And turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her hair, uh, with her tears, have washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but yes, she hasn't stopped kissing me. My feet, since I came in, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loves much. But the one who isn't forgiven, little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Oh, this is beautiful. Amen. Something disgusting had happened. Amen. A woman walked in and began to anoint the feet of Jesus. To Simon, it was disgusting. It was repulsive. In that culture, you would have walked her out. How dare she touch a prophet? But Jesus not only allows it, but commends her for doing this. And the story is that Simon was the one who owed very little. And therefore, his love was very little. And she was a woman who was in sin. Now, when did she come to forgiveness? When did Jesus forgive her? Well, if I read the story synoptically in the other Gospels, it's right up to the story where Jesus said, Come unto me, those who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You have to read Matthew for that, because both Simon and the woman heard the same message. Who came to Jesus? Now, Simon had him at his house, but Simon loved very little. You would say Simon was doing the minimum. Simon was doing the duty. I'll have him at my house. Why not? Bring him in. But he did the minimum. No water. And this is something a host would have done. Actually, Jesus would have done something very terrible by doing this. He would have criticized his host. <gasps> Everybody would have gasped. How can he criticize the host? Well, he gave him no water for his feet. He didn't greet him with a kiss. That's the idea of greeting him with a kiss. He didn't offer anything. He just had him for dinner. Just like, okay, Jesus, just sit somewhere. But this woman comes and she directs all her passion and all her love and all her attention and devotion to Jesus. Why? Because she had many sins and Jesus forgave them all. And so she was like the one who owed 500 denarii. She was the one that owed a million dollars. And it was wiped out like that. Jesus says, that person loves much.
because she's been forgiven much. And, and how does that apply to us today? We're all sinners. Jesus has forgiven all of our debts. Oh, Pastor, well, you might have been your million sins, but I'm not that million of a sinner. I'm a 10,000 sinner. I'm on the club of the 10,000 sinners. Some on the club of a million sins. But see, when you begin to see you as very little sins that Jesus had to forgive, then your love and, and adoration of Jesus is minimized because you would do very little for him. You would actually devote your time and energy and effort very little for him because your love is minimal. And so there are two types of Christians, in a sense. There are those who do the minimum. Oh, man, I'm, I'm going to come on a Sunday, but don't ask me to do anything. Just, I'm just going to come. I'm just going to come out of duty and out of, you know, I'm just going to come and don't ask me anything else. And there are those Christians who say, what can I do? What else can I do for him? What, I mean, I mean I, we're only meeting for an hour? Is that all? I mean, can we meet somewhere another time? And, and they just want to spend the time with the Lord. They just want to spend time with him. The duty, the duty ones, the ones that come with duty, it's like, I came. I'm done. I'm going home. Don't ask me to come back. That's done for me. You know, it's an hour. Punch in, punch out, and that's done. But see, that's the, he who forgives much has been, he who loves much has been given much. Because love, in this, in this, in this incredible story, love has something to do with forgiveness. Love is the response to forgiveness. It's not because she wiped her, his, uh, his, uh, his feet that she was forgiven. She was forgiven because she came to the Lord. And the Lord forgave her. And what is her response? Just like you see it. Love, adoration, worship, spending time with the Lord at his feet, humility before the Lord. Oh, what a great, this is an example of a woman who got it right. The, in direct proportion of your forgiveness is your love. How much have you been forgiven? Well, all I have to see is how much do you love? That's really the response. You think about it. There's no, there's no words. She, we don't even know what she said. I don't even think she said anything here. It's not by many words that she said, but it was her response that tells you that she loved them more than anybody in that room probably. So the question is today, how much have we been forgiven? No, 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 don't say anything. The answer is, how much do you love the Lord? And in direct proportion of your forgiveness is your love. Oh, I love the Lord. Ah, no many words. Remember, no many words. The answer is, how do you show your love for the Lord? That, my friend, is the key. If we were in a room full of people that were deaf, couldn't hear a thing, you couldn't stand up here and wax eloquent for an hour. You couldn't stand up and give a 10-minute presentation of why you're a Christian and you love God. You couldn't, you couldn't prove it to that guy. He's deaf. But what you can do is that he's very observant, and he wants to see that you really love the Lord, that you really are devoted to Christ. That, my friend, you can't hide because it requires a response. It requires a love response for the Lord. And he says, he who's forgiven much loves much. And he tells the woman, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. 
That, my friend, is the greatest news you probably ever heard in your life. I don't know how that grabs you, but man, it grabs a lump in my throat when I hear, because that's what Jesus told me. And that's what Jesus, if you're born again, has told you. But that's what Jesus wants to tell you. If you're not born again and you want to accept the Lord based on what he said and who he is, your sins are forgiven. What kind of a Christian are we to be? We're to be a Christian that loves much because we've been forgiven much. We're to be a Christian that is devoted to Christ and his body and his people because we've been forgiven much. This woman had all the makings of somebody who would have been discarded from society. Oh, the Lord loved her so much. And she loved the Lord incredibly. And where sin is, grace abounds. Man, she had a lot of grace. And so don't be discouraged. Man, I have a lot of sin. Come on in. Come unto him, those who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing story. I, I don't even know if we scratched the surface on it. We could have spent hours on it, but it would not have done justice to the fact that each person here had a, a decision to make, a response to give. Which one are we? What are we to live with? What are we to do? What are we to respond? How are we to deal with this passage, Lord? This is how you want us to do. Lord, if we're skeptical today, we're to bring it to you. If we have a hardened heart, if we have made a God of our, of our own selves and want to do things our own way, Lord, please change us. We want to see the real Jesus. We want to worship the true and living God. Lord, and if we lack faith, please help us. Increase our faith, Lord. But Lord, help us to recognize that we've been forgiven much and we need to love much. Oh, Lord, I, I pray for our fellowship that we will love much. We will love Jesus so passionately and intensely that it will be evident to all who come by our service and our love for him. Lord, thank you that you make this possible. You make this happen by the power of your Holy Spirit, living in us and through us. Lord, help us to die to ourself and our pride and our selfishness and become more and more like you in that aspect of, of serving you, serving the body, serving your people. Lord, we're desperate for those things, Lord, in our lives. We're desperate to be like you. And Lord, help us to leave not having this thing in our hearts that we came, we did our duty, and that's it. Lord, but it would be a delight. It would be a delight to be here in your presence, in your word, because we love you, because you've given us so much more that we can ever, ever imagine, and that is forgiveness of sins, and no one else can ever, ever repeat those sins back to us because they're gone, they're hidden, they're non-existent anymore. Thank you, Lord, for those promises. And we ask you, Lord God, today that we will spend time, Lord, thinking and, and time in your word and time in, in fellowship and thinking about your great forgiveness that you gave us. Oh, Lord, how much have we been forgiven? So much more. And so, Lord, I thank you that this is real to us and we can make it true in our lives if we live it according to your power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, please work in us. And I pray for those who are here who've never accepted the Lord, never made a, 
a confession of faith, a commitment to him by faith and true repentance that they would accept and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. And if there's somebody here, Lord, with that heart and that desire, they would do that and simply pray, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I've broken your law. I've broken your, your commandments. I don't love much. I don't even know if I'm being forgiven of anything. Lord, I ask you that you forgive me today. Help me to walk in newness of life. Help me to walk in your ways. Make me born again, Lord, by your spirit and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.